Father, now we um, take and mark this time aside for you to teach us, to instruct us. As David said, oh, how I love thy law, it is my meditation all the day. And it's awesome when we realize he was thinking of the first five books of Moses. That was his meditation all the day. And all of the lessons that that teaches us, we pray, Father, that we might be able to have some insight into what he loves so much, into what forms the foundation of the New Testament, and why we can be so glad that we have a great high priest rather than Aaron and his sons. How grateful we can be that the Spirit of God dwells within each believer rather than just in a location like a holy place of a tabernacle or a temple. Lord, help us to learn the lessons of the wilderness march that we might not wander in unbelief and fail to enter into the land and the promises that you have for us and the full Christian life as depicted by Canaan. Lord, help our minds to be open, our hearts to be sensitive, that once again as we go through this book, it might speak to us of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Since all of these things were written about as examples for our admonition, we pray, Lord, that we might devote ourselves fully to these things. And thank you, Father, for the hunger of so many to know your truth and to get the full counsel of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, don't be thrown by the title of the book, Numbers as if it's an arithmetic lesson. The first chapter and the 26th chapter, you might think, well, you know, it is an arithmetic lesson. I had a friend that was my roommate. David Theta was his name, and he would get kooky ideas like, I'd stay away from the book of Numbers because he thought it was an arithmetic lesson. He didn't like math in school. This is serious, too. And he said... Uh, I've never read that other book, the book, that job, the book of job. <laughs> I said, what? Yeah, you know, the, I, I, I'm unemployed, and I feel like I'd just be so convicted if I read that book of job, because I don't have a job. I said, David, that's the book of Job. That was the guy's name. We actually enter into a book tonight that is the foundation of so much of the New Testament. The book of Hebrews bases itself upon the books of Leviticus and Numbers. And as Leviticus was a book of worship, Numbers is a book of wanderings. And there in the um, third and fourth chapters of Hebrews, the author talks about wandering in unbelief. That good news was preached to the children of Israel. They heard the promises of God, but they did not mix the promises of God with faith. And he brings out a very important lesson that Numbers brings out, that you can have all of the promises of God at your disposal, and they don't do you a bit of good until you claim them by faith and make them your own as part of your personal life experience. They're just words on a page or underline or even memorize words on a page, but until you step out and live them by faith, mix them in faith, then we can be doomed to wander in disbelief. 
Now, Genesis, this is the fourth book of the Bible, the fourth book of the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses, the first book, the fourth book of the Torah, or the law. Genesis is a book of beginnings, the beginning of life, the beginning of God's plan for salvation, the beginning of a family, the family of Abraham, and Isaac, Jacob, and then we see Joseph, We see that family going to Egypt eventually, Joseph and his brothers and even his father, as about 70 people in the land of Egypt. Then we get to the book of Exodus, and suddenly that small family has grown into a nation, and an oppressed nation at that, a nation that is under the whip of the masters, the cruel Egyptians who made them build their fortune cities And they didn't give them even the wherewithal to do it. But we see that that family has become strong and it is now at an important time for God to fulfill his promise to take the descendants of Abraham by the hand of a mighty deliverer, Moses, to a land that he promised Abraham a long time ago. Then we get into the next book. As the children of Israel are camped around Mount Sinai and the tabernacle is established and the worship system is established for that nation. They learn that God is important, that they must have a relationship of love and worship and servitude to God. Now we get to the book of Numbers, where they start out at Mount Sinai, but then for almost 40 years they wander from Kadesh Barnea toward the plains of Moab in unbelief. Now there's a couple of scriptures that are important every time we go through a study in the Old Testament. One is in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, verse 4, and Paul is speaking about the Old Testament. And it's an important verse because every now and then some Christians say, well, now why should we even study the Old Testament? It's sort of like those courses in college that they made you take, but you really don't need them, right? Wrong. Why would God write a book and include it for you not to read? He just, well, it's there, but... You know, you don't need to read it. And so Paul, in Romans chapter 15, said, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and the comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. The Old Testament is filled with good and bad examples. And I like reading bad examples. I like reading the book of Numbers, the book of failure. Why? So that I won't repeat their mistakes. I want to examine and scrutinize what they did. I see so much of myself in the children of Israel. I see myself in their attitude of complaining, their attitude of unbelief, their attitude of seeing, oh, there's giants in the land. We'll never be able to take them. So all of these things were written for our learning. Lessons for us. The other scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. Speaking again of the Old Testament, he said, Now all these things happened to them as examples and were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We get the term numbers from the Latin Vulgate translation. The title is Numeri. The reason they call it numeri, which means numbers, is they get their title from the Greek version, the Septuagint version, 
And the title is Arithmoi, or literally Arithmetic. And the reason the Septuagint gives it that title is because of chapters 1 and chapters 26, which is Arithmetic. There is a census taken of the nation of Israel, the fighting men of Israel. And they are to go through the camp and find out how many people, 20 years old men, 20 years old and above, are ready to be soldiers in the Israeli army. The census is given. Two different census... censuses? Sensei? I don't know. Two different counts. One is given from Mount Sinai. The other is given after an entire generation kicks the bucket. A million people die in the wilderness. They take account again. The Hebrew Bible has the term bemidar, which means in the wilderness, in the desert. That's what they call this book because that's really where most of it is spent. The first 10 chapters are spent camped at Mount Sinai. And then chapters 11 through 25 are from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. And then the last 10 chapters are from Kadesh Barnea onward wandering toward the plains of Moab east of the Jordan River. They spent so much time in the desert. It's also been called the Book of Wanderings or the Book of Journeys by some. I've given it my own title. I call it On the Road Again. Like the song, On the Road Again. Moses and I are traveling on the road again. And because they're out there disobeying God, living in unbelief, complaining all the way, their walk with God causes them to just wander. They're on the road again when they really should be in Canaan. According to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, it was an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to the opening, the portal of the land, Kadesh Barnea. 11 days. It's about 150 to 200 miles, depending on where you believe Kadesh Barnea lies. Should have taken them 11 days. In camping for a month, as they did, seen in the previous books, a total of about 40 days should have been the maximum to get from where they were to where God wanted them to be. But instead of 40 days, it took them 40 years. That is a drag, to think that you could waste so much time. I'm always praying that I would learn lessons that God has for me because I know God's pattern. God will always seek to bring me back to that place where I didn't learn the lesson until I learn it, and then I'll graduate to further lessons. And that's why you see so many Christians, they may be 10, 15, 20 years old in the Lord. They are infants spiritually, haven't learned basic stuff. They're just wandering around and around, never learning those lessons. And so the book of wanderings. Now the book could be divided into two. You could just say, we'll take uh, the first 25 chapters. That's the first part of the book. And chapters 26 through 36, that'd be the second part of the book. And you could just divide it by the census that were taken, the first and the second. I'd rather divide the book into three, and you'll have an outline one of these days. The first would be organization. That's what we're going to read about, how God organizes the encampment of the children of Israel, the fighting men, and the rest of the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites. 
Organization, that's chapters 1 to 10. Disorganization would be point number 2. That's from Kadesh Barnea, or from Sinai toward Kadesh Barnea. And then reorganization from chapters 26 onward, as the new generation takes the uh, baton, so to speak, and makes its way toward the promised land. This book, since there is a generation shift, and so many die in the wilderness, the book also deals with how to pass on truth from one generation to the next. And that's always an issue that we grapple with, is it not? We dedicate our children to the Lord. We pray for them. We want them to get the concepts. You see, that old generation saw so much, so many of the miracles of God. They saw water come from the rock, manna come from heaven. They watched the Red Sea open up. So much to pass on. The new generation hadn't seen it. How do you teach them these things? And yet... Though the older generation saw so much and could sit around and say, remember the good old days? They were the ones that fell in unbelief. So just because you've seen a lot or you can look back to some great spiritual experience, don't rest on that. In fact, take heed lest you fall. Here was that generation that saw more than their kids had seen and it was the younger generation that went into the land, not the older generation. Yeah, they just sort of stagnated. They stopped. Rather than saying, okay, if God can open the Red Sea and God can make bread fall down from heaven and water come out of the dirt, I guess God can beat these giants. But they didn't think that way. They saw themselves as small compared to huge giants. And so there is a type. There is an application for us. And that application would be that we don't need to wander through unbelief. That is not God's will or pattern for us. We should, in taking the Pentateuch, go from our beginnings, our genesis as a Christian, on into instruction, which is Exodus, and deliverance, on into learning worship, which is Leviticus, and then on into the fullness of what God has, the full, mature Christian life. We should grow rather than just wander and stagnate in unbelief. Now, before we jump right in, and this is the first night, I want to give you a little biography on Moses because Moses is the kingpin. He is the deliverer. And I've got to say, I do not envy this man. I would not want to be the pastor of three million of these characters in the middle of the desert, running around in tents, I don't care if there's a tabernacle there or not. No thanks. I don't want the job. My first um, introduction, of course, to Moses was Charlton Heston. And when I read the Old Testament, I still see Charlton Heston in my mind. And so I was thrilled last year when I finally got to meet Charlton Heston. And it's hard not to say, Moses! I came so close to saying, let my people go. <laughs> I had to refrain myself from doing that. But there were three periods of life, uh, of uh, three periods in Moses' life. And he's at his third period. 
The first period was the first 40 years. And during that time, being educated in Egypt, he was trying to really be something, make something out of himself. By golly, I'll get all the learning of Egypt and all of the uh, riches of Egypt, and I'll become something. I'll become someone. Josephus says that the pharaoh of that time had no sons of his own, only daughters. And according to Josephus, Moses would be next in line to be pharaoh. So he had it made. Remember, Egypt had a lot of smarts back then. They had the temple to the sun. Hieroglyphics were taught. It was in ancient Egypt that they first thought the earth was round. It wasn't Columbus. The Egyptians had that long before anybody else. They calculated originally the distance of the earth to the sun being 93 million miles. And the calendar advanced in their culture. Moses had a great education. Moses had uh, everything he wanted financially. He probably had his chariot out there with his personalized license plate. You know, Pharaoh number two. Next in line. Yet, the scripture says in Hebrews 11, he gave it all up. By faith, he forsook Egypt. And rather than being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So there's Moses, the first 40 years trying to be something. The second 40 years is when God broke him, took him to the backside of the desert, taught him a few lessons. And the second 40 years was the time God spent showing Moses that he was nothing. Humbling him. Making him a shepherd who was so insecure that when God finally called him, he said, I can't speak. I can't talk to Pharaoh. I can't be a spokesman. And the third period, the third period of 40 years, is where God showed Moses that he could take nothing and make something out of him. That's what I love about God. God will, you want to be used by God, you must be broken. That's why you don't find arrogant people being used significantly by God. I'm important the way I am. I'm, I'm you know, hey, listen, God, God doesn't need any of us. But I'll tell you who God uses is that person with a broken and a contrite spirit. And when Moses was sufficiently broken, God, I can't do it. Oh, Moses, you've just qualified. You just said you can't speak. Well, I'm going to put my words in your mouth. So God used him in a very powerful way. So he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now, every aspect of the wilderness, you see it just beginning in chapter 1, chapter 2, and it just unfolds. Every aspect of their encampment in the wilderness, around Mount Sinai, the giving of the law that we've already seen, the erection of the tabernacle, the establishment of the priesthood, the order of the march, which begins in the first ten chapters, every aspect has God as the center piece of the life of Israel. He's in the center of the camp. There's the tabernacle. Then there's the priesthood around it. Then there's the camp of Israel all around that. There's a sense of awe that permeated the camp as they realized God is in our midst. There in the midst of the camp was that cloud, that pillar of fire. And cloud that 
was guiding the children of Israel through the wilderness. And so God was the ultimate authority. God would speak to Moses. Moses would give the directions to Aaron, to the Levites, and to the rest of the people. But God would speak directly, the scripture says, face to face as a man would speak to his friend. Now, though I don't envy Moses, and though I'm glad we don't live way back then, it was an awesome way to be led. How often we say, oh God, how can I know your will? Well, back then, no problem. There were laws. God spoke to Moses. Moses would speak to the people. There was also that cloud once again. It hung over the tabernacle. And the children of Israel were told to set up tents, make the tabernacle portable. Everybody would have charge of some portable aspect of it. And whenever the cloud would move, they would move. Whenever the cloud would stop, they would stop. There weren't brake lights on it. There weren't turning signals on it. You just had to watch. So they could never get into a permanent building, a permanent structure. By the time they went down to the city and got their building permits, you know, God would have taken off three weeks ago. In this city, months ago. (laughs) And so it was just portable. Just watch. Just wait on God. Be flexible to the moving of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, you look out one morning and that thing would start shifting a little bit. And Moses' wife would go, Mo, look, it's moving. we we got to tell the people, get going. And there was an established order of who packs up first, which portion of the tabernacle you get, which tribe packs up first, marches and so forth. It had to be that way because of the amount of people that were out there traveling through the desert. It was a great place to be in the sense that God provided for them. They didn't have to worry about food. Um, God provided manna from heaven. They'd wake up in the morning and there was this stuff all over the ground. All they had to do was pick it up. Water came from the rock. In Deuteronomy, looking back, God says, Now remember when you were in the desert? Even your shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. Can you imagine having shoes that would last 40 years? If you could walk into Kenny shoes or Payless shoes or Florsheim shoes, and they, these shoes are guaranteed for 40 years. Wow. They drive everybody out of business. Of course, probably you'd get tired of the fashion of the same shoes in 40 years. Some of you don't see that as an advantage, but as a disadvantage. But nonetheless, God provided, and for 40 years, everything was taken care of, even in their disobedience. Wow, that's grace. I heard of a pilot who was flying his plane. Fog rolled in. It was getting dark. He was insecure about flying with instrumentation. He was good at the visibility part, but he was bad at instrumentation flying. And so he started panicking as he thought of all of the mountains around the city and the tall buildings and all of the things. And he was reassured when the voice from the control tower said, Now you just calm down. You follow the instructions and we'll take care of the obstructions. And that was God's message to the children of Israel. Just follow my instructions and I'll take care of the obstructions. Now, as you started in the book of Numbers, they did that. They're very obedient at first. It starts off on a positive note. You think, all right, we're making some headway here. But things change, as is often the nature of people. Let's get into verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. 
in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they came, had come up from the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, their father's house, according to the number of names, every male individually, from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. The numbering was only of men, and the men were 20 years old and above, and God was conscripting an army to fight, self-defense. While they were in Egypt, they were slaves, and God took care of them. But now they're a freed people, and God at Sinai commands them to get an army. And boy, do they. Over 600,000 are able to fight in this army. This is a sizable group of guys. But it's interesting that God is very practical. And God can take care of them, and yet God says, you will have an army. You will defend yourself, even as Jesus told his disciples. You know, I took care of you before when you went into these towns around Galilee. You didn't have a sword. You didn't have a bag with you. But now, get what you need. Carry sandals with you. Carry your necessities and go get a sword. That's just practical. Now, there are people who think that, you know, all you need to do is say, peace, brother, and put a bumper sticker on your car, say, peace, all, we, all you need is peace. Think peace, world peace. And that all of a sudden, if you put that on your car, you're going to have world peace. Just think good thoughts. That's naive. We live in a big, bad world. And one of the reasons that countries need armies and weapons is because there's lots of bad guys around the corner. And so God was practical. Get an army, establish it. And God would be with them. And God even promised them victory if they continued in obedience. Now, if you're to compare the two census figures from chapters 1 and chapters 26, there's a big difference. Uh, we'll see it in a minute that the number is 603,550 fighting men at the beginning. Over in chapter 26, after the complaining and after the judgment, there's 601,730, or a loss of 1,820, almost 2,000 men, as time goes on. Now, there are 600,000 fighting men. How big was the group that came out of Egypt? Don't think of a small group of people. You've got to take Albuquerque times four to get the idea, or times six, to get the idea of what Moses was dealing with and what this camp looked like. It was a group of people that was large. One scholar, in estimating this, and he used to work for National Geographic, said if you had 600,000 fighting men, and he said probably about 400,000 women, 200,000 senior citizens, 800,000 children, plus the mixed multitude, part Hebrew, part Egyptian, there would be between two, probably closer to three million people. It's a big group. Starting out with 70 people some years ago in Genesis and growing, being multiplied and being fruitful in the land of Egypt. Now there's three million of them. Marching with three million people would not be easy. So get in your mind, this camp was like a city probably the size of about Albuquerque in terms of square mileage because people dwelt a lot closer together uh, with a lot less room than we do now. Now, in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, 
in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come up from the land of Egypt. This is exactly one month after the tabernacle has been erected that we read about in previous books in the Old Testament. Notice, though, it says God spoke. God spoke to Moses out of the tabernacle. Moses had spiritual experiences that none of you or I will get ever close to. When was the last time you saw water come from a rock? When was the last time you saw a formidable body of water part, giving you dry land when you wanted to get across? We have to build a bridge. When was the last time you saw food fall out of heaven? Moses saw so many amazing miracles, had so many encounters with God, bushes that burn but don't get consumed, cloud, all of the things he saw. Yet, here's my point, Moses himself, with having God even personally speak to him, was never totally satisfied. In fact, after many years of seeing the miraculous hand of God, most of the things we die to experience, he said, oh God, show me your glory. In other words, I want to see your face. I want to be able to behold you. God said, if you do, you'll die. You'll burn up, man. Now, to me, that is an important insight because all of our worship, all of our wonderful experiences were never meant to totally satisfy us here. I believe they were meant to whet our appetite for heaven. To think, oh, I can't wait to get to heaven. Thanksgiving Day was so awesome as we had banners made and people marched around the church in here and held their banners up of what God had done over the last year and we worshiped and had a great time. We heard testimonies of the faithfulness of God throughout the year. And as the service was ending, I thought, oh God, I don't want this to end. This is my favorite service of the whole year. This is so, so awesome to see how you've been at work in the lives of your saints throughout this year. Oh, I don't want this to end. But even David said, Lord, I will be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. I don't think worship was meant to satisfy us. And so many of us think it is. Oh, I just, I want to get to that place of, listen, every time I have a great worship experience, I don't walk away and go, okay, well, been there, done that, satisfied, never need another one. Oh, I want more and more and more. And what's my appetite till I'm finally going to be in the presence of God and be so utterly changed and be like Jesus Christ when I see his face? I won't be satisfied till I see his face. And if you're ever apart from your family for a long time, you're never satisfied till you can get back and see their little faces. You can have pictures of them and you can look at them, but they're so one-dimensional. They pale in comparison to the real face. You want to be with that person. Moses saw a lot, and yet he wasn't satisfied. Now, though Moses saw a lot, he was imperfect. It wasn't because he had attained some high spiritual plane that God said, oh, now you're ready for this, Mo. Nobody else can be like this. No, Moses was a failure. Moses himself failed to believe God, failed to represent God, and he himself was not allowed into the promised land, but he only got to see it from the plains of Jordan, from Mount Nebo. He got to look into it, but he never got to enter himself, so he himself wasn't perfect. Now, in verse 2, God commands a numbering. 
But later he condemns a numbering. Remember what David did in 2 Samuel 24? He took a census of the children of Israel. God condemned him for doing that. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is the first one God commanded. That's really all that needs to be said. If God says do it, do it. Period. Follow God's instructions. The second one was done on presumption so that he could feel good about how many men he had and he could sort of rest in the strength of his army rather than in the Lord. That's really the idea behind it, I think. This first one was done for an accounting of the people so there would be order, number one. Number two, for accountability among the children of Israel. And three, as a testimony of God's faithfulness, God said, I will bless you and I will multiply you and your seed more than the stars of heaven. And imagine what they thought when we said, they said, your army is over 600,000 men, 20 years old and above, all fit for war. Wow, that's just the army? Wow, God has kept his promise. He has sure multiplied us in the land of our enemies. And it was to them a hallmark of the faithfulness of God according to his promises. Now it mentions here the tabernacle. Can I refresh your memory on the tabernacle so you can get it fixed in your mind? This is a tent, a very fancy tent, but only a tent. Do you like to camp? I love to camp. I love setting up my little tent. I love getting in my sleeping bag at night and getting this stove and trying to cook those things that they call food. And, but it's just the thrill of being outside I love. But I don't like it for very long. I like it for a few days. I can take it even. I've taken it for a few weeks. Do you know, after a few weeks of living in a tent, getting in and out of a sleeping bag, taking baths wherever there's freezing water, <laughs> eating whatever you can, and, and smelling pretty ripe after about three weeks. I've gone through the Middle East and through Europe like that. By the end of that time, I can't wait to put the tent away, to get into something permanent. Now imagine camping for 40 years. Impossible really to imagine. They were Bedouins. They were nomads. The tabernacle was the tent in the center of all other tents. It was downtown, and the city was built around the downtown. You had the tabernacle, and around the tabernacle to the east, Moses and Aaron would camp. And then the Levites, according to the three families, the sons of Merari, Gershom, and Kohath, would camp around the tabernacle because they had to care for it. That was downtown. Then the two to three million other people would be on all sides of the tabernacle. On all four sides, there would be four camps with three tribes in each. Judah's camped with three uh, uh, to the east and, and so forth. That's how it was set up. Now the tabernacle was a courtyard. That's what it looked like, about six feet tall with linen curtains attached by silver hooks connected to silver rods into posts. And there was a tent of cloth. The measurements were 150 feet by 75 feet. 
150 feet long, 75 feet wide, had one opening, and that was the door to the east where Moses and Aaron had their tents pitched. They could look toward the opening of the tabernacle. As you would walk inside, and being six feet tall, people back then couldn't see over it. You would go into the courtyard, and the courtyard, that huge 150 by 75 foot courtyard, sort of had two sections to it. On the eastern side, in the open space, there were two articles of furniture. First of all, you'd come to this huge altar of brass. It was a place of sacrifice. Animals were slaughtered. They were placed and burnt upon this sacrificial altar. The altar was seven and a half feet square, four and a half feet tall. It had horns on it, a platform going up to it. Beyond that, as you'd enter further into the courtyard, was a laver or a place to wash. The priests had to have enough water to wash themselves and be ceremonially cleansed to offer the sacrifices. Now beyond that was another tent, covered, and that was the tabernacle proper. had two sections, the holy place and the holy of holies. If you were to walk into the courtyard and you looked at that other tent that had skins covering it, it would be 15 feet wide by 45 feet deep, divided into two sections, one being 35 feet deep and the other being 15 feet deep, right? 30 from 45, good. And uh, the first part was the holy place. So imagine you being a priest and you walk into the holy place, that second tent. You walk into a place where on your left-hand side, that's your left, that's my right, would be a seven-branched candlestick called the menorah. Oil was burning in those things as a testimony of the presence of God. And then over on the right-hand side would be the table of showbread, a loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel on a table. In front of a little curtain would be an altar of incense made out of solid gold. Then you would walk through a veil, a curtain. And beyond that curtain is the Holy of Holies, and it had what in it? the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, that Ark of the Covenant, of course, was the place where really the presence of God dwelt and the high priest could go in there once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. That was the center of the tent. And they wandered around in the Sinai wilderness with this contraption. And as we'll see in chapters 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, the Levites had charge of the tabernacle. Now let's look at verse 4 of chapter 1. And with you there shall be a man from every tribe, each one of the head of his father's house. So you have Moses, you got Aaron, you got 12 other dudes who are representatives of their tribes, and they're going to help count all of these army men. And there's a lot of names, as you notice down in the verses below. Um, now, names mean something, and we'll go through the names, mention a few of their meanings. But remember, Hebrew people, when they gave their kids a name, it was always significant. It either meant a wish, a prayer, a desire, a fulfillment that they wanted their child to fulfill in their lifetime. Like Daniel, God is my judge. Or it was something that happened at birth, a circumstance of birth, they would name their children accordingly. And so Abraham and Sarah, their second born was Isaac. Which means laughter because Sarah cracked up when God said, hey, you 90-year-old woman, you're going to have a son. She went, ah, oh, she laughed. She cracked up. 
She said, shall an old lady have pleasure in her old age? And so she named her son Laughter. Then Isaac had a couple of sons. What was the firstborn name? Esau. That means hairy. Red or hairy, or red and hairy. Because when Esau was born, he came out all red, and he had a lot of hair on him, and they said, let's call him Harry. That's what it means. And then Jacob followed, and Jacob had his hand grasping his brother's heel, and so they called him Yaakov, which means heel catcher. So we have Harry and heel catcher. These are my two boys. Now in verse 5, one of the funniest names is a woman in the Old Testament who heard that the ark of God had been captured. And it so distressed her that she went into labor and had a child and called her child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. How would you like to be called that your whole life? Why, uh, my name is Glory Has Departed, and I'll be your pupil in your class. And that'd be hard to live with. And verse 5, these are the names of the men who shall stand with you from Reuben, Elizur, the son of Shedeur. Reuben means a son. He's called unstable as water in the Old Testament in Genesis. Elizur means my God is a rock. Verse 6, from Simeon. Ooh, let's just... Uh... Verse 12, <laughs> Dan and a whole bunch of other guys. Ahizer and all these other people. But look at verse 15, Ahira. Ahira means my brother is evil. So obviously dad had some falling out with his brother, and so this kid had to bear the brunt of his uncle's shenanigans. And Moses, verse 17, Moses and Aaron took these men who had been mentioned by name. I didn't mention them by name, but they did. And they assembled all the congregation together on the first day of the second month. They recited their ancestry by families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and above each one individually. As the Lord commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. Now, so far, this is great. On the very day that God said, do it, they did it. They must have believed in Nike theology. Just do it. You know, there was no, well, let's think about this. Let's deliberate. Let's pray about it. They just did it. God said it. They did it. Prompt obedience. It won't last. It goes downhill from here on out. Now, why did they get so hung up about declaring their pedigree, their ancestry? Well, it is important to Jewish people to know the stock you come from, the tribe that you come from. There's a second reason the Old Testament has lots of these names. Because the genealogy of Jesus Christ is important. And there's a key, by the way, a little secret in looking at the Old Testament. You will see genealogies rise and fall throughout the Old Testament. They'll rise and then they'll fade away unless they are important and related to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Then they'll be talking about, talked about in great detail. Otherwise, you'll see them for a while and they just sort of pass from the scene. But the New Testament opens up with a genealogy in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel because genealogies, it's important to trace your lineage. And it was important for Jesus to be able to trace his lineage, not only as a Jew, but back to King David. There's another reason. Later on, 
eligibility of the priesthood becomes important. You have to be able to prove that you are from the tribe of Levi. Do you remember when they came back from the captivity in the book of Nehemiah? There's a few people who said, well, I'm a priest. And they said, well, find your name in the register here. They couldn't find it. And they said, I don't care if you are a priest because you cannot prove it genealogically. You cannot serve as a priest. They were disqualified. So they tried to keep records as best they could. You also have a pedigree. You are a son of God or a daughter of God, a child of God. And it's important that you are able to declare your pedigree. It's important that you are able to say, I know that I am a son of God, a child of God. First John says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God. That's your pedigree. I was told growing up, well, you can never really know or be assured if you have salvation until you die and you stand before God and then you'll find out if you're saved or not. And I always thought, I'm sorry, but I can't buy that. That's way too late in the game for me to know. I want to know now. Well, the Bible says you can have assurance of your salvation. You can know that you're saved. It's not arrogance or presumption. You, can, you should be able to say, I know that I'm a son of God. You say, well, how can I know that? John said, as many as received him, to them he gave the authority, the right, the privilege to become sons of God, to those that believe in, cling to, rely on his name. Verse 19, the Lord commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai, the children of Reuben, Israel's oldest son, their genealogies by their families, their father's house, according to the number of names, every male individual from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Those who were numbered in the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Now you'll read in chapter 26 later on where they lost about 2,000. They were down to 43,700 later on. So they lose their numbers. Verse 22, from the children of Simeon, their genealogies by their families, their father's house, on and on and on. Verse 23, were 59,300. In chapter 26, they're down to 22,000. So they lose 30-some thousand. Verse 24 and 25 speak of Gad, 45,650 compared to 40,500 later on. They lose 5,000. Verses 26 and 27 are the tribe of Judah. Interestingly enough, they begin here at 74,600. Um, they increase by a few thousand. Of course, the line of Judah is the line that Jesus comes from. Then we get down into verses 28 and 29. Issachar, 40. Uh, 54,400, they will also increase to 64,500 later on. So, verse 45 and 46. See, we're really plowing through this chapter. All who were numbered of the children of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war in Israel, all who were numbered were 603,550. Now, that's a formidable army because essentially... Every dude from 20 years and above is in the army now. Whether you like it or not, you can say, well, you know, I don't feel led to fight. Tough. You're 20, 25, 35, you're fighting. So they had a large army. 
which made it convenient. It was really an army that was lying in wait. They were in the reserves. Whenever they were attacked, they could quickly get together and fight because they are giving an order of their march. As you get through numbers, it's very organized. The way God says, this camp first, that camp second, this tribe third, and they march out to battle. Now, in Israel today, it's very, very similar. If you are a male and you are 18, you are automatically in the army. Whether you feel led or not, it is an automatic draft. If you're an Israeli citizen, you are an army person. If you are a woman 19 years old and above, you are also in the army. There are exceptions, uh, marriage, certain schools, and so forth. But basically, the entire nation of Israel is a huge reserve army. In fact, the Israeli Defense Force, which has a minimal amount of soldiers always on the job, takes its reserves from the rest of the army population and is in 48 to 72 hours able to grow five times their original number and be out wherever they need to be fighting the battles. It's a very well-defined and well-organized army. So if you ever want to move to Israel, you have to be in the army. And you see a very patriotic group of people. If there's a call to arms, they're ready to defend their nation, usually at a moment's notice. Verse 47. But the Levites were not numbered among them by their father's tribe, for the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor take a census from among them, among the children of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, over all its furnishings, over all the things that belong to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They shall attend to it and camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to go forward, the Levites shall take it down. When the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall set it up. The outsider who comes near shall be put to death. The children of Israel shall pitch their tents, everyone by his own camp, everyone by his own standard, according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel, and the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they did. The Levites were the ministers. Take the animals, kill the animals. Make sure the furnishings were put in place. Tabernacle was working just right. Now, it's understandable that they wouldn't fight in the army, right? Because they had to be ceremonially clean at all times. And you can see that being in the army, there would be times when you would be disqualified. One of the qualifications is that if you touch a corpse, a dead body, you are unclean and you have to go through all these rituals. Well, if you're in the army, guess what? You're going to be ceremonially unclean a lot because there's going to be a lot of dead bodies that you're going to be around. Unless you lose, then it doesn't matter anyway. So they needed to be set apart for the ministry of the tabernacle. And so God says, don't even count them. Don't take a census. Later on, chapter 2 and chapter 3, the census will be taken, especially for this tribe of Levi. They were to set it up and they were to camp around it. Now, this teaches us something. The center of the camp was God. Worship 
That's what Leviticus was all about. This is how you set it up. This is what you do. These are the sacrifices. These are the feast days. God places a high priority on worship. And so should we. The secret to a successful Christian life is having and maintaining a priority system. Get up in the morning. First word should be to your Savior. Time spent. You're fresh. Now some of you are night people. And in the morning is your worst. And your peak is at night. Well, save the best time then. Save that peak for God. Worship is always to be the predominant feature of the life of a believer. Our lives belong to him. You notice something that God always wants, the firstborn, the first of the flock, the first of the harvest. He wants the best, the cream of the crop. God didn't say, well, listen, just go have a good life and give me the leftovers. Yet how many times do we give God the leftovers? How many times when things are needed to minister to other people? I'll give them the leftovers. I'm not using these old shirts anymore. Let's give them to the church. As my wife was walking past the box that we have for our poor ministry, collecting blankets and gloves, and walked by one day, and she saw that it was empty, and so she just began to pray. She made it her daily prayer. Lord, fill the box to overflowing. So she, after her woman's ministry, she came and she saw on a Tuesday the box was overflowing with gloves and blankets all around the top onto the floor. And what really blessed her heart is they were brand new. New gloves, new blankets, not just leftovers. People had gone out to buy them. That's great. How commendable to give the best, not the used stuff, not the leftovers, the best to God and to minister to others. Now, I wanted to go through four chapters tonight. I guess we won't be able to. <laughs> Let's close with a couple lessons, shall we? Number one, even as there was this enrollment and numbering of all of the people, your God also has an enrollment, a list. Your name. I can't think of a greater honor, can you? To be on God's list. Jesus said to his disciples when they came back from the towns of Galilee and they saw demons subject to their name, to the name of Jesus at their word, they were so stoked. They were jazzed. They were on a high. Wow, we saw spiritual power. Holy Ghost really moved in our services. Jesus said, don't get too excited. Don't rejoice that the demons were subject in my name. Rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's what we ought to get excited about. God keeps a numbering of you. Revelation chapter 20, the new Jerusalem. There are people who are excluded, but the people who are included are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's also another numbering that you may not be aware of. We hear about the Lamb's Book of Life, but the last book of the Bible talks about another book that God keeps. I like the idea of this book. It says, those 
that thought often and talked about the Lord to one another. A book of remembrance was written before God about them. It's amazing for me to think about that. God is interested in what you say about him. You have a conversation with your friend. You're in the coffee shop. You're on the phone. As you start fellowshipping around what matters, you start talking about God. It's as if God goes, shh, angels, hold on. They're talking about me. I want to hear what they're saying. A book of remembrance is written. God has his role. But there's another lesson. And that is God has a place for each one of you for service in the body of Christ, even as some were in the army, some were staying behind watching this stuff, some were ministering around the tabernacle, and we'll develop that theme more next week. That is the awesome privilege of being able to offer your life for service unto God rather than saying, gimme, 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 saying, take me, take me, take me, and letting God work through your life. Beautiful lessons yet to come, lessons of success, as well as lessons of failure, shall we pray. Father, we are so thankful tonight for the blessings that you just pour out upon us and the lessons that we've already learned in this book. It is very evident that you are a God of order. You didn't tell the children of Israel to just do what they felt led to do. You gave them careful instruction. And we know that in the New Testament it says, let all things be done decently and in order. So, Lord, I pray that as you conscript us for your service, we would consider others in the body of Christ and in an orderly, loving fashion minister to those whom you love. Lord, thank you that these things were written for our instruction and for our example upon whom the end of the age have come. I thank you, Lord, for a group of people that is excited about the Old Testament as about the New Testament. It's the curriculum you have given us. It is part of the whole counsel of God. And we thank you for the power that is in the word and the lessons that we've already discovered tonight. Help us now, Lord, to seek to apply those. For in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. 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 We ask it.